This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And that's the sound of the AUKUS agreement on nuclear subs being signed, or to quote Paul Keating, the sound of the Kabuki show in San Diego. There were flags and subs and warships and brass bands to ring in this long-awaited announcement which occurred at the U.S. naval base there in San Diego. U.S. President Joe Biden and his signature aviator glasses, of course, welcomed Anthony Albanese and the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and then our PM took over the show. From early in the next decade, Australia will take delivery of three US Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines. We are also proud to partner with the United Kingdom to construct the next-generation submarine SSN AUKUS, a new conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarine. This will be an Australian sovereign capability built by Australians, commanded by the Royal Australian Navy and sustained by Australian workers in Australian shipyards. It was a big announcement and, as I said, a big fanfare. And Cameron Stewart, the Chief International Correspondent for the Australian and long-time Defence and Security Watcher, also former US correspondent, is going to be joining us here in the party room soon to pour over the promise, the policy, the politics of this deal and its $368 billion price tag. Yep. You heard that right. PK, Cameron Stewart knows a lot more about submarines and national security than I do, but I do know an expensive and risky proposition when I see one, and this is that, which is not to say it's not the right defence security lever to pull, but there are risks, right? Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, Lots of risks, and yes, potentially running and operating three submarine platforms at once is a big one. Although there's a question mark about how long the um, Collins class extension goes. Look, the price tag, uh, the lack of submariners, let alone the skilled workforce that's going to be needed to build these things later down the track. All of that and more we'll discuss with Cameron a little later because... It's huge. There are foreign policy implications, the response of China and the region, the actual logistics. All of that is huge and we will be digging deep. We will. Former Labor Prime Minister Paul Keating had never thought much of this AUKUS submarine plan, never thought it was a good idea. He really went for broke, though, at the National Press Club yesterday. He did it with his trademark invective, which I'm not really a fan of, I have to say. But is it possible to look beyond that to the substance? Does Paul Keating have a point when he says this is, quote, the worst deal in history because, to quote him again, all this fanfare, all these subs are being built and only one bloke is paying, Albo. He reckons we're suckers. That wasn't a quote, but that's what he was saying, wasn't it? Yeah. And look, I think some of the critique should be part of the discussion and we should have a really thorough conversation, which we will with Cameron a little later, about all of that. Some people love love it when he stands down journalists and all of the stuff he does. 
Some people think it's wonderful. I, yeah. I got lots of texts on the Thursday morning on RM Breakfast from people who liked it. I do think journalists have the right to be treated with respect and I'm always going to support the fourth estate and their right to ask questions. But I think on the substance which you ask of... I think the substance matters. I think the questions around whether this is actually going to be a good thing for Australia and our motives for doing it and whether it is just about helping out the US. And when I saw the three leaders standing up there making the big announcement too, that line from Paul Keating, the one that resonated with me the most, was only one of them was paying for it. I thought the same thing. I did. I thought, well, it's easy for the others to stand around and not. This is great pomp and ceremony, good pictures, but we are paying for it. Yeah, look, I think Paul King was very, very uncomplimentary about Defence Minister Richard Miles and Foreign Minister Penny Wong, particularly about Penny Wong. And he's had, you know, words about her and her stewardship of foreign policy in the past. Um, He's not the first to have commented. In fact, this has been commentary for for quite a few years now in Australia that defence has overtaken foreign policy in this country and we've seen the degrading, if you like, of uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the build-up of defence policy. We see you know, fewer ambassadors and we tend to sort of go down the defence lens on our foreign policy. He's not the first one to make that observation. But I think criticism of uh, Penny Wong or diminishing what she's been doing as foreign minister, I don't think a lot of people will agree with that. I mean, there is huge. There is a huge amount of credit going to Penny Wong for the way she's taken on the role of foreign minister since Labor was elected 10 months ago. She's visited 29 countries, some of them more than once, and including having visits and ministerial contacts with her China counterpart, the foreign minister of China. So she's done single-handedly, I think, a lot of the work in getting Australia out of the deep freeze with China. And I think Australian people are noticing that and liking it. As we said, we'll talk about uh, AUKUS more with Cameron Stewart a little later, but let's go to the other big story and that's had a few moments this week, this energy, general energy story. Uh, The rising cost of our electricity bills has been an ongoing theme. This week we found out electricity costs are set to rise big time. The Australian energy regulator is about to raise its default market offer. It's draft form at this stage, but we, we have the sense of what's going to happen. Now, this is the price cap on how much retailers can charge customers and the regulator is estimated to hike it by as much as between 20 and 22%. In Victoria, it's going up, I think, 30%. So it's big price rises people are going to face as of July. It sounds enormous, but both the regulator, Fran, and the government, they say it would be much higher if the Albanese government hadn't intervened at the end of last year capping wholesale gas and coal prices in December. We've had very high coal and gas prices as a result of the war in Ukraine and the um, recovery from the pandemic. We've also seen a number of outages in our uh, particular old uh, coal plants. And so we we were seeing uh, towards September, October last year, the AR started doing some numbers on what we thought this could look like. And at that time, we were advising governments it could be between 40 and 50%. That was Claire Savage. She's the head of the Australian Energy Regulator speaking to RM Breakfast on Wednesday. Now, Fran, this comes as AEMO again warns the southeast faces possible gas supply gaps even this winter, like in a couple of months, and says that this could happen during extreme weather. So even though we're hearing it could be much higher, that's not going to take the sting out of this increasing costs for many households and at the same time hearing, oh, we might face shortages. I mean, that doesn't sound like a good situation. Uh, It's not a good situation for people who are A, 
can't afford to pay these increased prices or are going to be left without gas in if the gas is their only heating and cooking capacity this winter. And you're right, AMO suggesting Victoria in particular could be hit this winter. So that's not good. State and federal governments are going to have trouble managing that. The federal government will cop heat because of these power bill price rises, these horrendous increases. Some households in Victoria are read a tip to pay more than 900 extra per year on their power bills. These are rolling out on Labor's watch. So I, I think we should keep an eye out in the May budget for even more government support than is slated already. That said, as we heard there, the regulator is giving Labor some cover for these price hikes, saying there would be 50% more if Labor hadn't intervened. But as I say, tell that to the households paying the bills because Angus Taylor is going to be telling them something different. He'll be reminding anyone who wants to listen that Labor promised to reduce electricity bills by $275. That is not going to happen. And if we get actual shortages, PK, well, it's back to the drawing board, I think. You know, it's really going to bring this whole issue home. Does Labor have the political skills to turn this around and make it all reality that supports its policy of rewiring the nation, which is another big ticket national priority? On that, the government, Labor, has been saying and really, really repeating um, the old repeat policy Actually, the coalition voted against their intervention. And they do have Claire Savage to quote saying, if we hadn't intervened, prices would be higher. Now, that's a big thing, hoping that people are listening to that level of detail, (laughs) that they want everyone to know that if your price isn't as high, yep, it's high, but if it isn't as high, well... Actually, the coalition didn't vote to reduce those prices. So yeah, that's but the even politics. I'm getting confused as you try and explain that. <laughs> exactly, to me, so, it's very hard you know. for that to resonate. You you are dead right, and that's the political problem for Labor because they're in power and people don't have time to know who did what, when, how. They just think, think well, my bill's still going up in July. I'm cranky. Mm. And they will be cranky, and they could be cold, which would be even doubly worse. Mm. Uh, PK just. Before we go to Cameron, the RoboDebt Royal Commission wrapped up last week after several months of evidence from a number of former cabinet ministers, former prime ministers. There were plenty of lawyers there too, senior public servants, departmental heads, and of course those who were affected by this scheme, this illegal scheme, which we now know it to be. Harrowing stories brought to light in the Royal Commission really did a stupendous job, I think. What lessons do we take from this, PK? Because the number one lesson seems to be on the face of it, the public service is not fit for purpose. Well, we have a public service that clearly, if you heard some of the testimony, particularly from Renee Leon. She was the former head of human services. That's right. That If it was difficult information to be shared with the government, it was to be shared verbally, for instance, mm. uh, not in paper. And she also said, maybe don't share it because you know it was going to have a detrimental effect on your career. And, well, she lost her job and there were others. So, look, I think the Royal Commission will inevitably come to conclusions, including an overhaul of processes. 100% it will have to, right? And I think that this new government is going, oh, I mean, it called this Royal Commission, is going to have to institute that to the letter because a frank and fearless public service that isn't afraid of consequences is something that you can't just rely on sort of the goodwill of a government. You need to build in processes that allow for that. And I think that's the inevitability here. Uh, The system needs to be changed in and of itself, that it can't operate on the goodwill of politicians being ethical. 
And I think so timely, these recommendations will come out as we're embarking on this process we've just been talking about, this AUKUS process, $368 billion potentially over 30 years, a massive amount of money being spent. Thank God we're going to have a National Integrity Commission too up and running by year's end um, because this is going to involve so much of the public sector, the Defence Department, the Foreign Affairs Department, the Skills and Training and Education Department. We need to have our public service really match fit. We do, and the robo-debt has exposed what happens when you are the most powerless, and welfare recipients often are the most powerless in the country. We need big changes. So hopefully that's what this Royal Commission does, that it's not just about recriminations of a previous government. I'm not saying there shouldn't you know, be consequences, by the way, but that there is systemic change mm. that has meaningful consequences. Yeah, because I think all through this, the whole discussion and the real interrogation at the Commission, most of it has been about the legality and the legal advice. Did anyone hear the legal advice? Did they get it? Who saw it? The illegality of this scheme, which in the end cost the government billions of dollars because, you know, it's all been in that prism. But the prism of fairness is really, I think, one as a nation we need to examine here and that we need to learn a lesson about that. Perfect time to bring in our guests. What do you think? Let's do it. Cameron Stewart, Chief International Correspondent for The Australian. Welcome to the party room. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, Cam, the AUKUS announcement has been the story this week, and really for some time we've known it's coming. We've been swimming in the submarine details, as I'm sure I know you have, because I've been reading your work. But can you just briefly for us outline what the Prime Minister announced in San Diego and why it's so significant? He announced the biggest investment in Australia's history, effectively, $368 billion to spend over three decades to acquire a nuclear-powered submarine fleet, not nuclear-armed, but nuclear-powered. These submarines are basically twice the capability, at least, if not three times, of the current Collins-class conventionally-powered boats, and they'll be able to stand order indefinitely. They can go straight up to China. They could actually fire missiles onto Chinese territory. And so it's a quantum leap in defence capability for Australia, but it's also a quantum leap in complexity because it's never, ever been done before. And so it's really a, a leap off a cliff in a sense for the Australian government to do this. This is uh, a massive enterprise. And I know they've talked it up very big this week, but it really is true. It's an enormous enterprise. OK, you say the cliff. I love the cliff analogy. Are we going off the cliff and we're going to fall and crash? Well, this is the great question because it looks fabulous on paper in theory if everything goes right. But PK, I've been reporting on submarines long enough to know that whatever can go wrong will go wrong. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the last decade or so has been really a comedy of errors and non-production by governments on both sides of politics. And, you know, it's every chance that uh, things will go wrong again. There are huge mountains the government has to jump to make this happen. And uh, for a comedy of errors, it's not been all that funny to watch, really. One of the big things that everybody knows out of the first announcement was the price tag cam, $368 billion over 30 years. And I've been watching submarine and defence projects long enough to know that if it's that much, it's probably almost going to be double that, most people think, by the time it's delivered. Opposition leader Peter Dutton cautioned Labor against moving money from other areas of defence spending to fund the subs, although Shadow Defence Minister Andrew Hastie had a slightly different take. As the Assistant Defence Minister, I saw a lot of waste and there are always savings to be made. So uh, we're not arguing that there should be no cuts. We just want to make sure um, that these are done in a considered way if they are done. And we also want certainty. 
So, Cam, that's Shadow Defence Minister Andrew Hastie speaking on breakfast. Did he just bell the cat about the waste and profiteering within defence budgets more broadly? I mean, he says seems to think there's fat that can be cut here. What do you think about that and what do you think about this price tag? Well, there's always fat that can be cut from defence because it's, it's a very fat cow um, and it's a lot of money and it really can always be trimmed. The question is uh, is how you do it. I mean, governments have always said that, I guess. Uh, Fran, I don't think there's a more rubbery figure in the history of Australian politics than $368 billion. <laughs> I mean, really, these are, you talk to politicians on, on background, you both would have done so, and they, they admit these are, these are guesstimates. Yeah. I mean, they, they just cannot know all the factors that come in. And the fact that they've actually put $100 million between the two figures, 268 to 368 billion just shows how much uncertainty just there is. Just a cheeky here. 100 mil- billion? Exactly. That's $100 million of risk there. They're admitting up front. And look, we don't know how much the Virginia class boats that we're supposed to be buying from America will cost. We don't know how much this homegrown British designed submarine in Adelaide is going to cost. We don't know how much the workforce is going to cost because you are going to have to pay these workers a hell of a lot of money to, uh, to work on these submarines because otherwise the mining industry, as always, will steal them. So, Cam, there's a few ways you can look at this in terms of the political impact of this. One is putting out that price tag, you know, helps Labor get the public on side for budget cuts like Stage 3 cuts, for instance, which, by the way, is something like $243 billion over 10 years, so that's a pretty hefty price tag. But the other thing, the suggestion is that most of the spending of this happens beyond what we call the out years, so much of it would happen when we're you know, likely to not have a Labor government it might be a coalition government, but certainly future governments. And this is a way for Anthony Albanese and Labor to sort of fend off any khaki advantage that the coalition might normally have over a Labor government, get all that kind of plaudit and not actually have to, to pay for it. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the great thing about these huge defence projects politically for governments is that they can make the grand announcements now, get the pat on the back and not actually have to pay for it mm. unless they're going to be in power a long time. We saw the same with uh, the Turnbull and Morrison governments with the 2016 announcement on the submarines. Everyone said, wow, fantastic. And it just never came to pass. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The real problem and challenge here for Australian governments, regardless of their political persuasion, will be down the track when they actually have to pay for this and they have to look at voters in the eye and say, OK, well, this might cost a bit less with education, health and NDIS, whatever it might be. That's the real political challenge. Albanese doesn't really have that in the short term. No. Look, let's go to why, the why we're even getting to this point. Rising regional tensions are clearly behind AUKUS, and since taking power, members of the Albanese government have been running a a charm offensive in the region, attempting to reset, stabilise relations with China. Obviously, China is our, our biggest trading partner, and we need China to trade more with us. Business has been calling for it. We know we need it. Now, China's foreign ministry accused Australia of breaching global rules on the spread of nuclear weapons and warned Australia was going down the wrong and dangerous path. So is Australia potentially back in the deep freeze? This will be really interesting to see exactly how far China pushes this line. I mean, they've been opposed to AUKUS from the start, so their reaction to the actual announcement is not a particular surprise. But, you know, will they now back off removing some of those sanctions that they put on in recent years or not? I think that's really an interesting question. I mean, there's no doubt they will be very upset with the details of this announcement. Australia potentially getting Virginia-class nuclear submarines is a really quantum leap in defence capability. But they have seen it coming for a while. It would have been baked into their political calculations. And so I don't think they will go off the deep end. I think um, what the noise you're hearing right now is probably about as far as they'll go that we will have okay. to wait and see. And I have another question. You mentioned at the start of the podcast, what can these subs do? And you said they can hit China. Now, I suspect that's our plan, uh, right? That's not what we're trying to do here. So what is it that we're trying to do? And does Paul Keating, which we'll get to in a second, but does Paul Keating 
have a point with his previous comments that this is like throwing toothpicks at China. Are we really able to be scary? You were a lot more scary with um, three to five Virginia-class submarines in your fleet than not having them. This is a very long-term plan. That's the thing to say. Australia doesn't actually get any improved submarine capability for a decade. And frankly, for two decades, it's only then it's going to really improve. So this is a very long-term plan. And who knows what the strategic situation is like then? I mean, some people will argue it's, it's too little too late. But the government is just saying, well, we've got to put these long-term plans in place already. Well, Cam, I think it's important to take a minute to talk about what we are trying to do by gaining this capacity, this capability of these subs, because Paul Keating was adamant in his press club speech yesterday. He said, and I'm quoting him here, the Chinese don't want to attack anybody. They don't want to attack us. They don't want to attack the Americans. They don't want to attack the Indonesians. Uh, He said, it's not like the old Soviet Union. China's not seeking to propagate some competing international ideology. He said, they're never going to plan to have a martyr of ships on our soil. So if China's not planning to attack us, what is it that we will be using these subs for to maintain, as the quote keeps coming from our ministers and our prime minister, peace and stability in our region. You'll hear the government talk a lot about the capabilities of the submarines, how far they can go, what they can fire, etc, etc. But I think the answer to that, Fran, is a far bigger one, and that is deterrent. That is really what they are trying to do. They're trying to put uh, these submarines in the fleet to say, look, if you want to ever make a move on Australia or Australian interests, you will pay a price. It's interesting, uh, Keating, he said, the old-fashioned forward defence concept. Uh, Labor's always been hostile to that because of the Vietnam War. You know, they've always, they've always had a defence of Australia mm. concept. And that's what Keating was saying. He's saying, we need submarines just to defend Australia. We don't need these things to go to China or anything like that. And that's a really interesting philosophical difference. And that's where I think you saw Keating clash with the government so heavily on that concept. Yeah, but he said these things, he described them as the Virginia-class submarines as 8,000-tonne clunkers, too big for our coastline. He said the technology by then will be able to well be able to notice them from space, so they're going to be useless. So what are we deterring China from, attacking Australia or blocking supply lines, you know, in the straits, or what are we trying to deter And here's where uh, it becomes a bit more controversial, Fran, because I think you're also looking at the fact that these could deter perhaps China from making a move on Taiwan. This is obviously in concert with the US forces, and that's the whole issue here, is the assumption is that Australia will be lockstep with US forces, and that's what Keating doesn't like. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to that. Now, I've heard some people argue, hang on a minute, we're already in lockstep with the US anyway, so this idea that this really dramatically increases it is... An exaggeration, because we were there anyway. What's your take on that? And what would happen at a flashpoint like Taiwan? The answer currently from the current government, including Richard Miles the other night in an interview, is you know a government would make that determination at that time, i.e. it's a hypothetical, can't decide. But aren't we inextricably linked now, Cam, to the US? So we would almost have to participate in any campaign to defend Taiwan. Look, I don't see it's a great difference in one sense. I mean, sovereignty is in the eye of the beholder in the sense that um, if you're you're very pro the US and US alliance, people are not worried about the sovereignty Mm. issues here. Uh, People who are more wary, including Keating, of course, are very much worried about sovereignty issues here. Remember, we have uh, joint facilities in Pine Gap. We have uh, enormous amount of interaction with the US over the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance already. We are in lots of ways embedded strategically and defensively with the Americans already. So this does take it to another level. I don't think it's a quantum leap, but uh, your second question, PK, about um, Taiwan, I think Australia would almost certainly be involved. I don't see how they couldn't be. 
The um, the AUKUS agreement began under the Morrison government, as we know, but the Albanese Labor government's now carrying it through and there is absolute bipartisanship on this. But do we have a tradition generally, Cameron, of bipartisanship on defence matters? I know it wasn't always the case. Simon Crean was not a fan of going into Iraq. But generally, when did this begin? And does it but- hold? Yes, exactly. It, we don't have bipartisanship on issues of equipment selection. There's always arguments between the yeah. parties over, uh, you know, more tanks, less tanks, uh, you know, ships, submarines, etc. But I think where we come together uh, politically is on overseas missions. You don't really see difference between the major parties on that. That's what we're seeing here at the moment. Look, I mean, Dutton was a bit critical, remember, a week or so ago about the concept of, of having a British submarine. But he backed off very, very quickly when the announcement was made. And now it's all love from both sides of politics. But look, you know, that will fray down the track. But at the moment, it's very, very solid. So we've decided to buy two to three with the option of buying another couple of Virginia-class subs, probably be second-hand, it seems. Is that a good strategy to start there and then move to the sort of UK-built model? This is definitely, I think, the most controversial and weakest part of the plan in the sense that what we're supposed to do is supposed to get three to five Virginia-class subs from America. It requires congressional approval. Very, very difficult to do. They've never done it before. So we go through all the hoopla of actually getting these submarines and we turn around and do a U-turn and suddenly make our own British design submarines in Adelaide. Now, Australia has never been able to never run a single nuclear uh, fleet in its life, much less two separate boats. And I think this might be the issue that future governments will look at, scratch their heads and possibly even change their minds on. It seems a very strange decision. I mean, did we make it because the Virginia class ultimately is, you know, just too big for what we need and too big for us to maintain? And do we... You know, do we are we anywhere close to having the submariner workforce, let alone the workforce to build these things? That's right, Fran. I think the answer to your question is is politics. I mean, they had to please, jobs, please, jobs, jobs, jobs. Exactly. Local defence industry, firstly, WA and South Australia, but also pleasing the Brits. I mean, they're part of AUKUS. They would have been left out in the cold if we didn't build their submarine later on. So, you know, if you take the needs of local defence industry out and the need to plead the the British out, I suspect we'd have gone with the Virginians. Uh, Okay, so let me take you to... Malcolm Turnbull, another former Prime Minister who I interviewed on RN Breakfast, and he raised actually another question. He said, I'm an Anglophile, but he doesn't trust the UK economy and an ongoing investment to be able to deliver. What do you make of that critique? Well, look, you know, Britain's a a modern, large country, but uh, they have had a lot of problems with their defence kit lately. They really have. They've got a lot of problems with the hunter-class frigates that, uh, that that's a British design, and that's the biggest problem uh, in Australian defence at the moment. So they haven't got a great track record, but that's not to say they couldn't do it. But what it will say, it will take a lot of time. There will be delays. There always are cost overruns. It's going to take forever to build a submarine, a nuclear submarine in Adelaide. Well, let's go back to Paul Keating. We've been quoting him a lot, and um, you know he had nothing good to say, basically, about this deal. Let's just hear a little bit of Paul Keating at the press club, just to get a, a sense of the mood of it. You know, the idea that we need American submarines to protect us, you know, three, if, there's, if we buy eight, three are at sea, three are going to protect us from the might of China. Really. I mean, the rubbish of it. The rubbish. China does not threaten Australia, has not threatened Australia, does not intend to threaten Australia. 
that's a taste of it, uh, and it got much more fiery than that. Leaving the invective aside, what did you think of the argument there from Paul Keating about the usefulness of these things or otherwise the expense of them, the strategic implications of them in terms of our relationship with China, and the sovereign, the sovereign risk issues too, the sovereignty issues about Australia being so reliant on America and the UK for these effective weapon systems? Well, I mean, uh, he's right in the sense that we are very reliant uh, with the US on them, absolutely. Look, the bottom line is Keating is talking about an absolute war with China. I don't think that's what uh, the submarine acquisition is looking at down the track. What they are looking at is working hand-in-hand with the Americans to try to deter Chinese aggression or strategic competition in the region. He's looking very much from a, a binary concept of, oh my God, the Chinese are raining missiles on Australia. Five submarines won't really help. But the bottom line is they will be in concert with the US fleet. I mean, they're not just five. Australia's not going to suddenly attack China with a handful of submarines. Keating d- deliberately muddies the waters on these sort of strategic arguments. You know, he does have a very old-fashioned view of China. I mean, look, he even balked at criticising their treatment of the Uyghurs. I mean, he really doesn't have an even-handed view or a modern view on China. I think that he really showed that this week, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, and it's interesting that he's really gone hard on the Labor government. Is this irreconcilable, Cam? It's pretty harsh stuff. It really is. I think the Labor Party will put him in the deep freeze for quite a long time now, even though that would really hurt them a lot because he's, he's one of their heroes in so many ways. But it's really an extreme and very public form of attack that he did at the press club. I really, it was astonishing to see. And it's interesting, an ex-Prime Minister becoming fairly anti the US alliance. I mean, we saw that with Malcolm Fraser. It does happen to a, a few of them. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to see where Keating will sit in the Labor spectrum. But I think he did a lot of damage to his standing in the party this week. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, he does have such high standing and is still an advisor and a mentor to many of the Labor leaders, state and federal. But Paul Keating's not the only one making some of these criticisms. Basically, you're agreeing with Bill Shorten and others who say that Paul Keating, you know, has got an outmoded view and experience of China. But he is not the only one saying that this is a wrong-headed move in, on sovereign issues and in terms of just is it the right capability at the right cost and is it coming too late? Yeah, well, it's certainly coming too late if you want that capability. Um, look, I think it's a it's a sensible long-term capability for Australia to have, but by gee, and it is expensive. Uh, and you certainly do have sovereign issues in the next 10 years. Honestly, the government can talk about having sovereign control as much as it wants, but the bottom line is that these submarines will be crewed mainly by Americans for a long time. Which is, when you put it like that, pretty contentious, isn't it, Cam? It is. It really depends how much you believe in Australia's alliance with its major, most important ally. I mean, it really comes down to that. If you are sceptical of that, then you'll be sceptical of this deal. And I think that's and that's a fair enough political point of view to have. But if you are very supportive of the alliance, you'll probably be quite relaxed about it. Cameron, um, picking your brain, we've previously worked together. I used to pick it, you know, as often as I could. And now I get to broadcast it to all of Australia and people listen across the world has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for letting us do it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Cam. See you soon again. We'll move to questions without notice. We give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Hear, hear, the bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes 
from Steve on Twitter who says, why is it okay for an Oz government to commit to a massive $365 billion spend without an election mandate, yet they can't implement relatively minor revenue reform without taking it to an election first? Interesting. Good Question, Steve. Yeah, good question, Steve. And it brings, of course, into stark relief uh, some of the reaction to the government's announcement that this submarine deal over 30 years is going to cost $368 billion potentially uh, and probably more and all the other things we could be doing with this money, all the other demands we have, particularly within the social slash welfare or the care economy. We know the government's got to spend a lot on aged care reform, implementing the recommendations from the Royal Commission. Disability care, NDIS, is blowing out and needs to be brought back to a sustainable footing, but even so, it's going to grow. I mean, there are a lot of calls. Universal childcare is something Labor says it wants to move towards, but that would cost a fortune. I noticed that the ACOS budget submission is calling for a $10 billion a year boost to JobSeeker. That would take those on JobSeeker up to $76 a day, which is not a lot of money, but it's a, a big price tag, $10 billion extra just for that. So there's a lot of things that could be done with this money. There's a lot of demands and people, I think, are feeling, well, we haven't really had a good discussion about this. But the government did say they were going to support AUKUS. We knew it was going to have a price tag of $170 billion. Some people will say, well, how come it's now doubled? The government is factoring into this price tag the costs as best they can assess them this far out for training, education, building the facilities that need to go around this. So it's not just building the subs themselves. It's all the infrastructure, all the skills and training and all the other bits of this that are going to cost so much. But, you know, essentially that's why I think the government has said this was its policy. It's going to have this price tag. It is a big shock and there will inevitably be an argument of how better to spend this money. And there is absolutely already, right? But I think the question about mandate is a good one. It does just demonstrate how different these sorts of issues are, right? That that something on super change, which is, as you say, modest and, and targeted, could be so contentious. And then this huge spend, nearly $400 billion, and according to Cam Stewart, you heard before, probably going to be a lot more, that this is seen as, you know, you don't need a mandate. I do think, though, that we knew they were supporting AUKUS. We know subs cost a lot. I think the bigger question is that there's a bipartisanship on it and therefore there is no competition really unless all of a sudden there are enough teals to form government or something, yeah. I don't know. And some people, some of the teals and David Pocock, one senator at least, has spoken out about this. The Greens too are questioning it. I would say one thing though, I would think that if a government is saying it's going to extend the defence budget with its huge program that's going to cost $368 billion, I think it's impossible that the rest of the defence budget is not paired back to pay for it. Now, Peter Dutton is warning the government against doing that, but you know the hard heads suggest that there will be impacts of this on army perhaps. So I think it is impossible that the rest of the defence budget does not somehow take a haircut to help pay for this. Yeah, there's some haircuts to come, Fran, and they're not going to make you look pretty. Uh, keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app. and You never miss an episode. We've had so many bonus episodes lately, really. Oh. Honestly, just subscribe and follow. Oh, we we are just bonus. That's us. Um, so please do it. Yes, that's right. And in case you haven't heard it, and you just this is your regular one. The the uh, party room at WOMAD with Penny Wong is worth listening to if you haven't yet or hadn't noticed that there was a new one that had popped up. So that's there too. Well, that's it from us this week. Of course, we'll be back next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.